I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Audrey Hausig. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little about who you are? Sure. So I am a board-certified music therapist. I've been doing that for 20 years. I was born in France when I was two. We came back to the States where my dad is from, and I grew up on Long Island. I came to Philly to go to Temple um, in 1995, and I'm still here. Okay. Um, Can you tell us about what you do? You touched on it a little bit, but maybe if you want to expound upon it. Sure. So I'm a board-certified music therapist. It's an amazing career. I work primarily with folks who have experienced trauma and complex trauma, folks who struggle with substance use, with grief and loss. And what we do in music therapy is we um, do an assessment, we develop goals together, and then we use both music and verbal interventions to help people find their way to reaching their goals, to being healthier. Hmm. And you said you've been doing this for 20 years, right? 20 years. Last month was the 20 year anniversary of when I completed my internship. Wow. That's a lot of time um, to spend in the profession. (laughs) It is. I think, you know, a lot of people don't to stay in the profession for that long. Definitely. After five years, I went back and got my master's, which was definitely crucial, especially to do trauma work. But doing that helped me um, be energized and supported. Um, And it's something I really love doing. When I went to school, I had no idea it was even a field. Mm. I just wanted to get off Long Island and play music. So I went to Temple. My favorite band is from Philly. So I was like, okay, I'll go there. Um, And um, I discovered it as during my freshman year and I switched over. Okay. So it was just really kind of serendipitous. Hmm. Isn't it interesting how things kind of happen sometimes in life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) In high school, the guidance counselor said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do music. And he's like, well, that probably won't work out. What else do you want to do? Great guidance counselor. Um, But I said, well, I guess social work. So, um, you know, it's it's a blending of of therapy and music. So Mm -hmm. it worked out. So you're also a musician? Yes. What do you play? um, I started with violin when I was seven. um, And that's what was my primary instrument in school. And I also play bass, which is like uh, a major love. And then for music therapy, we learn voice, piano, and guitar. Um, And then I played drums in a van for a little while. So those those five. So you have multiple uh, forms of musical talent then? Yes, but bass is my heart. I've never had a lesson, so I'm completely... Um, comfortable and do it my own way. There's no one in the back of my head correcting me. Violin, I went to college with, so, um, you know, that one's really comfortable too. And then guitar, I've been playing, you know, since I was 18 now, so a long time. Okay. And in your work as a music therapist, have you worked primarily in a particular setting or have you, you, have you worked in a lot of different settings? I guess at this point, it's been a lot of different. Um, I, finished my internship and was hired at the same place, which was a nursing home. They then shut down and I worked at a residential place for five years for adults with severe physical disabilities, which I loved. Um, they got a new administration who was really kind of unethical. So I, I left and I wound up working at a outpatient substance use treatment center up in North Philly. So it was really different. 
So mm-hmm. whereas the folks I was working with with physical disabilities spoke very slowly because of their muscular issues or neurological issues. They just spoke slowly out of um, their abil- physical ability. And then I arrived with people who, you know, had a lot to say. And so I went from doing like kind of half hour groups to two and a half hour groups. So very, very different. Um, but it was a really incredible experience. The people there were super open and honest and just incredibly resilient. Mm. Um, and it was really an honor to work with them. Um, and then I went to work at an inpatient psychiatric hospital, a state hospital. Um, and I stayed there for six years. I loved that too. After I, it was a bit of a commute. So after I had my kids, I went back for a little bit, but the commute um, just felt like it was a huge waste of time, especially being away from the babies while I was at work. So I um, came back up to Philly and I worked as a per diem at another psychiatric hospital instead of adults. This one was ages five, um, five years old. So children, adolescents and adults. So that was really different too. Um. During all that time, I also um, did some different projects for Temple, some research projects in a couple different settings. And then I started my private practice. So I'm kind of combining a lot of those different settings. So before the quarantine, I was in inpatient and outpatient substitute treatment centers. I was doing a choir in a nursing home. It's probably mm-hmm. going to be a while till we get back to that one. Um, a, a, and then some different contracts um, in a group home and a senior center and also seeing people individually for um, a variety of, of challenges. Mm. It's interesting um, when we think of music and how it's this universal language that connects with people of all ages, all races, all genders. And then also thinking about your role as a music therapist, it sounds like um, as a music therapist, you've also kind of been able to work with a lot of different people experiencing a lot of different challenges and then all across the developmental lifespan too. Right, right. Yeah, I've worked with, um, I think, my youngest client is three, mm. um, and I've definitely worked with people through the end of their lives, especially working um, with seniors. Um, so, so some of those were major shifts. Um, and honestly, when I went to work at first, work in substance use, I did not know what I was doing, and it probably wasn't very ethical of me to switch that quickly. I was still in grad school and still had a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I wouldn't say I did harm, but I definitely wasn't as competent as I could have been. So that was a big learning curve. And then as far as music being international in ways it is, I think just about all peoples relate to music. And in other ways, um, music is very cultural and very personal. So, you know, we have to be careful of that, too. Right, right. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Sure. Um, I think personally, a big one comes from before I was born, because in a generational trauma, of course, um, affects many generations. Um, Mm -hmm. So just, I guess, going back to my mom, she was born in Scotland. Her mom was from Scotland. Her dad was from Algeria, and he joined the Navy during World War II. I think he wasn't old enough, but he lied because he wanted to fight against the Nazis. And he did that and they met and um, they had two kids very young in Scotland and they moved to Algeria and then um, the civil war happened and they became refugees to France. Mm. So um, my mom has been through a tremendous amount of trauma. Of course, you know, her mom and 
and dad and her grandparents as well. So that's definitely something that has affected me in a lot of different ways. Just physically, I have a really exaggerated startle response. Not that I haven't um, experienced my own firsthand traumas, but I've always had that. Um, and that comes, that comes from my mom. And even my kids have it as well. Um, my kids who've led a very safe life so far in their first four years. Um, and, you know, just the way that um, my mom's outlook my mom's response to fear is definitely something that um, has stayed with me and that I've been able to become more aware of. So I think um, that's something that's a big part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that even though I didn't move, you know, and then of course my mom moved to the States and moved away from her family again after doing all these really big moves. Um, And so me moving to Philly, even though it's, you know, it's only five or six hours from where my parents live, give or take the traffic. Um, that was a big deal. Um, not so much for me at first, but, um, there was a lot of pressure to, to go home and a lot of kind of being split between those two worlds. Um, and in, in Europe and Algeria, families are very tight knit and families stay together. You don't have so much of this moving away and independence like we do here. Mm. So that was something to kind of figure out. And, you know, once I got kind of past my rebellious independence stage, um, finding a way to fit both those parts of me, of of my cultures um, and make them, make them feasible, make them work. So can you share a few positive moments or turning points in your story? Sure. Um, Definitely. um, You know, being a music therapist and being in a place where I can help people just really open my eyes to, to the world. When I worked with the seniors, it was people, you know, who kind of built the city and just hearing their stories um, um, was really an honor and a privilege and getting to hear, you know, how, how the city kind of came up and um, both the difficult and, and um, the positives Um, working with people you know, like an incredible amount of pain and this um, limited mobility helped me kind of get more in touch with my body. And although this was a negative, when this really unethical administrator came in and brought a consultant, I knew, you know, consultants come in to criticize you. They're being paid to find your faults. And I knew that was going to happen. And where I had a lot of self-esteem issues from some of my firsthand traumas, um, I kind of just decided in that moment that um, I wasn't going to let them question who I was as a therapist and as a person. And um, it really helped. It actually even helped with my body image issues somehow. Um, You know, they're they're related. Um, And then when I went to work in North Philly with folks struggling with substance use, some of them were more struggling with um, the justice system and really didn't need to be in any type of treatment for substance use. But there they were. they were really open and honest with me and um, that really opened my world. There were things that I was short sighted about um, and they were just so open that it helped open up my worldview. And that mm. for me, although it's, it's painful to hear a lot of what they went through. Um, it did help open my worldview, which I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Isn't it inter- interesting how we often like enter into the helping profession, um, seeking to support other people. And we also find that we are learning about ourselves and that sometimes um, in supporting our clients, we also receive some of the bo- the positive benefits of helping as well. 
Absolutely. And, you know, of course we put the clients first and we have to work really hard to do that. But in order to put the clients first, we have to be so aware of our own reactions. And, you know, when you see someone struggling um, and they're able to start to overcome those struggles and transform, I mean, it's, it's just inherently beautiful and you can't help but benefit from that. So right. yeah, we have to like find a balance between like, yes, I, I get so much benefit out of helping you, but it's, it's still not about me. Right. Right. It's, it's kind of like one of these like residual effects that it's not, it's not our primary goal, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anything else that you want to share about positive or uh, life-changing um, moments that have impacted your story? Um, definitely having my kids um, was completely life-changing. Um, of course, um, that was, you know, I guess kind of goes without saying, but um, that was definitely life-changing, having the two of them and their twins. So I was okay. kind of... Um, <laughs> in the a bit of isolation at first when they were first, once they first came home from the hospital after a little while, because it was just so busy. But of course that changes things mm. in a lot of positive ways. It's definitely a test of patience and um, just figuring out how to, how to do stuff. And, um, but it, that, you know, that's super, super fortunate. That's something I'm super grateful for. What do you see for yourself in the future? What's your future vision? You know, it's hard to, to say. Um, I recently um, left my per diem job. So for the most part, I'm just working for myself now, which gives me a lot of freedom. I had this plan for when my kids start kindergarten, which will be next year, mm. that I'll be in a position where I'm not doing any aftercare and I'm able to be with them, you know, from 2.30 or 3 o'clock on. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a short-term goal. Um, which will, you know, hopefully happen. Um, definitely to continue making music. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the midst of switching, leaving one band and starting a new band right when the pandemic started. So that's a oh. little tricky right now because, you know, I'm not going to get together with people unless I'm certain these people are going to be in my circle, even with the masks. Um, but that's something that's really important to my well being and my mental health. And then, of course, my health as a therapist. So that's mm-hmm. something. I really need to do. Um, have you been making music your, by yourself during the pandemic? I have not as much as I should. Um, and I'm home all the time. We're really fortunate that my husband works by himself in his carpentry shop. So he goes to work. I do a bunch of telehealth or maybe not a bunch, but I do a little bit of telehealth every day. And then um, the kids are home with me all the time as well. So they're getting a lot of screen time. So um, it's hard to find time by myself, especially because I feel like I'm using up that screen time time for when I'm working. Mm-hmm. So when I'm not working, um, it's important to kind of be present with them. And by the time they're in bed, I'm pretty tired. Um, so I do, but it's kind of little spurts here and there. Okay. Okay. So you think part of your part of what you want to do is figure out ways to incorporate kind of your own practice of music into a hectic schedule. Right. I mean, before the pandemic, um, you know, after bedtime, we had set practice. I'd go over to the practice space Mm. um, and go make music. And so even if I was tired, like it's something I committed to. And once I got there, I was in heaven and I was fine and I had energy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, even though it was, you know, later at night, um, I did it. But it's hard to have that discipline when I can just kind of 
um, on the couch and read a book or watch TV or something. Right. So that's, but I think this is going to be ongoing. So something I need to do is make sure that I'm playing because that's healthy for me and playing my music. Cause I do music with the kids mm. and that's all fine and good, but I need to do my own and my music has actually shifted a lot lately to, um, uh, being a little bit more explicit as some of the traumas that I've been through and, and describing them. So, mm-hmm. um, it's important that I have time to do that. So I just, I need to fit it in. I think once like school in quotes starts, I don't think we'll be actually sending them to school, but once the school year starts, we're going to, um, do a little bit more structure. I'm going to find a place in my home for telehealth instead of just going from one room to another sitting on my child's bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to find like a clear wall. Um, but that's something that'll be important. Okay. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Um, I mean, mine is making music. Uh, I guess <laughs> that seems obviously. And so I encourage people to either make your own music, um, make playlists that work for you. If you were to be receiving music therapy, that might be something you would do with a therapist is to really explore a variety of songs that help move you from one place to the next. So whether it's moving you from maybe um, negative thinking to more positive thinking um, or kind of unproductive thinking to healthier thinking, whether it's moving you out of um, anxiety towards feeling more calm or anger towards relief, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. making playlists that help you. Um, If you were to do that with a music therapist, we'd say it was moving out of anger. We'd probably start with a really angry song Mm -hmm. to meet you where you're at and then gradually shift um, through into songs that have you um, feeling less angry. So whether you're looking to feel calm or you're looking to even move all the way to joy, whatever it is. But I think playlists are something that most of us have access to mm-hmm. and we can put together and we can change them um, mm-hmm. as we need to. It's incredible how music can help you. Either, it can either like uh, validate a feeling that you have at the moment mm-hmm. or it can help you shift your mood. Absolutely. And there are a lot of songs that um, are triggers and that can be really scary and challenging to deal with. Um, When that happens within a therapy session, hopefully you're feeling safe and comfortable. um, And so then you can actually kind of explore and process the feelings and thoughts that do come up and start to shift them um, into something that feels more comfortable, that feels more healthy. Mm -hmm. And a song that used to be a trigger might turn out to be a recovery song or an empowerment song once you've worked through it. Mm. Um, Do you know of any resources for those who are interested in maybe seeking out music therapy or learning more about music therapy as a practice? Sure. Um, I have a lot of information on my website, so I'll plug it. It's philadelphiamusictherapy.com. And I have a bunch of links at the bottom of the first page, but there's um, musictherapy.org is the American Music Therapy Association which has a lot of information and resources. Um, Music therapy on its own does not get reimbursed in Pennsylvania because we're not licensed right now, Mm. but there is a bill somewhere in the legislature. I'm not sure where it is at this point. So hopefully we'll be licensed in the future and then we'll be reimbursed by insurance in um, more, more cases. Um, New Jersey and Virginia both got their licensure bills passed early this year. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of music therapists who do sliding scale 
for people who might not be able to afford the full rate. Um, I do. I probably do a lot more than I should, meaning I probably do more sliding scale than full rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, music therapists work in a variety of settings. So, um, you know, there's music therapy in schools um, or when we have school um, hospitals, CHOP has a huge team. They used to have it at UPenn, but it was back when I was an undergrad. They had cut it. Jefferson has a music therapist. Um, a lot of nursing homes have music therapists. A lot of um, outpatient treatment centers. I know Comar has always had quite a few. Mm. Um, so it might even be a good <clears throat> idea for people too, if they're already linked to particular services or systems, to even ask if there's a music therapist and if that's an off one of the offerings of the system. Right. Absolutely. Um, there's also a lot of music th- or quite a few music therapists do have an LPC. Um, my program offered me an LPC too. And I needed like a, I think it was two more credits and I thought, Oh, I'm not going to need it. Um, <laughs> and I can't do the two more now. I need to do a whole nother master's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> really stupid but at the time I was gainfully employed by the state and I was like I don't need those two more credits mm-hmm. but anyhow if you go to someone who has an LPC then your insurance um, can reimburse you something I do is if um, I'm really happy to try to connect people with services so if someone calls me and I'm not able to do what um, meet their needs uh, I'll really kind of look around and find different places that do offer services mm-hmm. Anything else you want to share with our audience? Um, what else do I want to share? I guess since we're talking about music therapy, just people are like kind of often kind of what's that? What does it look like? So I'll describe um, maybe a group session. What would often happen, at least in mental health, let's say with teenagers and adults, kids will look a little different. Um, we'd start with a check-in where people might share their name and their pronouns and how they're feeling. And I might ask a question like what's important to you right now, or what's one of your strengths or what are you focused on? And once everybody shares that, um, I would maybe find if there's some common say strengths or common areas of focus. And I'd say, you know, should we work on coping with depression? Should we work on stress? And then um, based on whatever they choose, I would offer some interventions. So I would say, should we, write a song about um, stress? Should we do some deep breathing with music? Should we make some music together? And everybody could choose together, um, person-centered. So I always um, do my best to have the clients leave. And then, you know, once they've chosen, we could do, you know, any of those things. You don't need to know how to play instruments to do music therapy. We use a variety of instruments that can be played by people who've never played before, or even with a guitar, we can tune it in a certain way that all you need to do is strum. Even with people who might not have full range of motion, we can um, adapt the instruments. We use our voices, but you don't have to. It's always, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, If you think like, oh, write a song, I don't know how to do that. You know, we do it piece by piece. So we might start with lyrics and I might just start by asking, um, what's the source of stress? And we'd brainstorm some sources of stress and, Once we have our list, it might be easy to put into words. And then instead of saying like, what's the music going to sound like? I might say, is it fast? Is it slow? Is it jazzy? Is it R&B? Is it rock? What's the theme? And just give people kind of some simple choices or even use loops from like GarageBand or a computer program. And kind of step by step, we wind up with this whole song, which if a group makes it, um, they work together. um, They've helped each other. um, 
and they've created something which can be really empowering. And then they've also probably identified some coping skills as well. Um, so it's kind of psychoeducational. So those are the type of things. And then, of course, we listen a lot because it's hard to open up to a new therapist. Mm-hmm. Um and tell them what's happening, but it's not as hard to play your favorite song that happens to say a lot of what you've been through. Right. Um, so, you know, you share, and sometimes people share the song without even realizing, and then they look at the words, which can be a really different experience. And then all of a sudden um, they feel a lot more comfortable sharing because the artist has kind of already shared it hmm. for them. It's interesting too, because when we think about trauma, we know that one of the main um, responses to trauma is avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have difficulty confronting the things that they've been through, the painful things um, right. directly. And music is an incredible way to still engage with a person, um, but, but also kind of working with the avoidance and allowing space right. for the avoidance and, um, mm-hmm. and also making space for expression and confrontation of some of the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors that may come as a result of trauma. Right. So it's, it's a buffer in a way. I like to hand out binders with, um, you know, like a hundred or so songs. So it's like you're holding on to something. You can even hold it up in front of your body or your face if you need to. Um, and when I see someone buried in the book, I don't redirect. You know, they're obviously doing that for a reason. Mm-hmm. And then so often people will say, I've heard that song a thousand times and never knew what those lyrics were. Mm. Never paid attention to the words. Um, and I, I think that isn't usually by accident. You know, it might be subconscious, but people aren't ready to engage with certain lyrics that um, really kind of hit deep for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, it's, it's a buffer and then it's familiar and familiar is so important. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.